Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning. Good morning. Yes, it's Annie Ann. And Kim. Yes, Solidarity Breakfast here for you on this fine, fine day. It actually is a fine day. Yeah, we have daylight savings now, which I was very put out. Yes, that's right. I think it was mostly because all the digital stuff changed and I didn't realise until I got into the car and then I felt like I'd been robbed. (laughs) Uh, Well, the thing about it is too, it makes you uh, go slow. There's something about uh, your internal body clock hasn't quite, doesn't quite speed up enough. uh, It takes about a week. It must be like travelling by plane somewhere where you slowly but surely get into sync. Yes, and it seems to be much worse than just an hour. I think it's my body protesting. <laughs> That's right. Because, well, you know, you, you're, you're up and about doing a whole lot of things at all the oddest times, I'm absolutely sure. <laughs> Why are you sure? <laughs> well, I used to be a young chicken once too. And, uh, you know, that, that thing about uh, staying awake for days and uh, just because there's something really amazing about the way it feels... <laughs> I'm just I think le- that's just you, Annie. I don't do that. <laughs> that's right. I'm letting my sleep show. Um, on Solidarity Breakfast this today, we're going to visit the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, because uh, there was a rally yesterday, uh, but that's not the reason why we're talking about it. It's because they're talking about the enforcing... Well, I was going to use the word enabling, but... Um, Legislation, but the Greens, uh, Sarah Hansen Young called it the enforcing legislation. So, therefore, I'm not entirely sure which one's which, but it does tell you about how language can be used to. Well, you have to be linguistically to the left of the Greens, at least. (laughs) That's exactly right. Anyway, uh, she uh, has been part of a Senate inquiry into uh, the TPP leading up to the Parliament actually either passing or not passing the enabling, enforcing legislation. And uh, lots of elements in our society and around the world are actually quite... uh, uh, heavily against the TPP, and there's good reasons for this. And we get to listen to a couple of different excerpts from the rally yesterday, this morning, to uh, give you an idea of uh, what uh, I, the ACTU say about it. Uh, uh, also, uh, Sarah Hanson Young gives us her view from the committee that she's just been sitting in. She came down to have a talk at the steps. And uh, then if you were scared of the TPP, you should listen to Carol Batt, who then tells us about how 
the uh, Liberal Coalition federal government is preparing to parcel up the public service and sell it off holus bolus. What? They can't do that. <clears throat> oh, well, that's what they're there for, apparently. It's just, a, it's just this major, major um, fe- festival of selling off at the moment. And uh, later on, we're going to talk to Joe Toscano about how they want to sell off uh, the uh the public housing stock to private hands. There'd be nothing left to sell. I'm surprised there still is. Well, they they try. They're going to sell sell off the triple O, uh, 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 emergency service. That's terrifying. <laughs> they're going to sell off the land titles listings. The land's titles. Did you know that? No. Isn't that bizarre? N- not just the A triple C. Uh, register of um, corporate uh, it, transactions. They're tra- going to sell that off so that uh, p- nobody can investigate what they're doing. Anyway. It's ingenious, it's a- really. Ingenious for really dumb people. The- I mean, this is, a, this is a, a clear reason for why these people should never have been given another chance at government. It's incredible. But anyway... Uh, that's what we're going to talk about later on. Uh, and uh, then uh, we're going to have a yarn with uh, Noah Pazil, Dr Noah Pazil from Macquarie University, our mate, who, and just because we love having a, a far-ranging conversation. And today we're going to try and talk about the English politics because one good thing happened. Corbyn came back with a vengeance. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, US, Trump in November, the fascist rising. And uh, then Australian uh, politics, the privatised fee-for-all. So you're on uh, 3CR, you know that, and uh, as Rod Contock will tell you. Hi, I'm Rod Quantock and you're listening to Fill in the Dots. You know who you're listening to. Why do I have to tell you who you're listening to? You know who you're listening to. You're listening to, yes, Fill in the Dots. 3CR Community Radio, you got it right, you've won a giraffe. Uh, we're at 8.55am, we're on digital radio and streaming at 3cr.org.au. 3CR has been making trouble since 1976 and occasionally I've been part of the trouble that's been made. It's a vital part of our uh, media landscape and I'd encourage you to get a hacksaw, an oxyacetylene torch and go up to the Dandenongs and, and bring down all those broadcast towers that aren't 3CR's towers and let's make 3CR the only source of information to an information-starved, dumbed-down Australian community. Written, authorised and spoken by Neil Mitchell. <laughs> it's funny because the other day, uh, David Straussman, you know, the comedian with the, uh, uh, who's a ventriloquist, you may or may not know him, but he came with in... With the puppets. Yeah, yeah, he's very funny. Do. Yeah, he's pretty funny. And he came in and was talking to... Uh, fellow broadcasters, uh, Arts Express, and he deigned to do a community uh, announcement for us. And he said the same thing uh, as Rod Contock. Why would I tell you that um, you're already listening to a... <laughs> no radio craft, plus no one knows how radios work anymore. <laughs> well, they have I to don't. come to the open, open day tomorrow. <laughs> And you'll see. Yeah, play with all the buttons. Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, between 12 and 4. Anyway, uh, as I threatened, um, we're going to listen to Dave Oliver, who's the secretary of the ACTU, a little bit of his t- speech about the TPP and uh, why it's a really, really tragic idea. As a former national secretary of the AMWU, 
Today's a sad day. Today's a sad day for manufacturing in this country. Um, where we'll see the very last Ford motor vehicle roll off the production line in Broadmeadows. Ford's Australia's oldest car manufacturer. It began making vehicles locally here in 1925 and started assembly the Ford Falcon out of Broadmeadows in 1960. And after today, it's gone, it's finished. Holden's next. Their Elizabeth factory in South Australia is set to close early next year. And then Toyota's gonna to shut up shop in Altona a few months after that. But just like that, we've lost our automotive industry. And it comes as no coincidence that under our free trade agreement with Thailand, get this, we have exported the sum total of 100 motor vehicles from here in the Thailand, and in return, Thailand have imported 1.8 million motor vehicles in this country. And it's not a typo, I had to fact check it, but 1.8 million. There's a little known fact, by the way, that when Australia entered into the free trade agreement with Thailand, days after the deal was done, before the ink was even dry, the Thai government announced that they would initiate a commercial vehicle tax that stopped dead any prospect of Ford exporting territories in the Thailand. And we get told continually, free trade is in the benefit of all, it gives us access to overseas markets, and everyone's supposedly supposed to be playing by the same rules. And so it's agreements like the TPP, they should be negotiated in the full light of day, and Australians who will be affected by this should be able to say no if they disagree with it. Now trade deals mustn't just be free, but they've got to be fair, especially for workers. Now the union movement in this country were not against trade. You know, we are strong supporters of increasing international trade. But the TPP is such a bad deal that opposing it is probably the only thing that Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump actually will agree on. And in fact, in America, the land of the free and home, the fearless capitalism, they've managed better than us to maintain strong domestic interests or industries while still engaging in international trade. And you have to ask yourself this question. We've got the biggest free trading nation in the world that are standing up saying we should reject this deal and yet in our country we've got our government that are trying to trip over themselves to sign up to it. We've got the biggest free trade country in the world that has protections for their own industry. So in America for example, if the US Navy wants to get a ship or a submarine built, any country in the world is welcome to bid on it, apart from those that are hostile. But there's one condition. If you win the contract, you need to build the entire thing in the United States. In America, a major infrastructure project, you want to build a road, a rail, a port, or an airport, well, all the material that goes in that must be made in the US because they have a thing called the Buy America Act. So they get it. Why doesn't our country get it? And we can't keep signing up to these unfair deals without doing more to support our local industries, our local businesses, and to stand up for local workers. Now, in this deal, Australia has agreed the temporary entry for all workers under its 457 visa program, covering no less than 651 occupations. And again, like CHAPTA, 
they'll be exempted from any kind of local labour market testing. So we'll just be importing semi-skilled and skilled workers from overseas and overlooking our own local um, workforce. And this deal not only is a threat to jobs, it has the potential for a full frontal assault on our democracy and the right for our governments to make laws for the public good because it contains the so-called Investor State Dispute Settlement Clause, the ISDS. And what that means, if a foreign corporation doesn't like our government or doesn't like laws that our governments are made because it might threaten their profits, well, they can sue the government in a secret tribunal by passing our court. And it's been used to challenge Australia's tobacco plain packaging laws and elsewhere to stop bans on harmful chemicals, to stop a rise in the minimum wage, to stop renewable energy and to stop a government from cancelling its plans to privatise its transport system. And in some of these cases, these secret tribunals, which, mind you, are made up of ad hoc three-member panels hired from a small club of private lawyers riddled with conflicts of interest, well, in some cases, they've granted billions of dollars to companies paid out of taxpayers' pockets. And this type of private adjudication is undermining our laws it's undermining our sovereignty and our democracy. There you go. That was Dave Oliver yesterday outside Parliament steps. How could you possibly go for this? In fact, I did some vox pop and I said to people, I couldn't help myself. I say, why do you think they're doing this? And everybody's just sort of, yes, why? <laughs> you tell me. <laughs> you tell me. <laughs> but anyway, uh, then um, we were lucky enough to uh, have Sarah Hanson Young come down from the actual meeting where they were, because that was the thing, you know, because they're doing, uh, they've been, they've forced the Senate inquiry into uh, the uh, TPP because otherwise, as she points out, it would have just gone through because the uh, Liberal Coalition government federally is just in love with it. I guess the only thing that they have to give in exchange for this partnership is us. Mm. So from them, it's a win-win from their perspective. Well, they're not governing for the rest of us. They're just governing for big business and international corporations, it would appear. Anyway, you're on 3CR Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Kim, and we're keeping you alert to the need to uh, shout out loud regarding the TPP. Coming up is uh, Sarah Hansen's, uh, Young's contribution to the TPP rally yesterday. Now, um, brothers and sisters, we have a senator here who's actually sitting in the um, inquiry, and so she's agreed to come up and give us a, a few words, let us know how it's going, and, of course, hopefully telling us about how she's putting up the fight there. I'd like to introduce Sarah Hansen-Young to the green. Thanks, Sally. Well, um, it's wonderful to see you all out here today. Um, there was another good gathering like this when the committee met in Sydney last week. And we need to really use this opportunity to continue to raise the voices because the TPP is a bad deal. It's a bad deal for Australians. It's a bad deal for workers. It's a bad deal for democracy, in my view. And giving these massive multinational corporations the power to override the decisions of a government elected by the people, if the government makes decisions to uh, change laws, they should be able to, to do that without having the um, nastiness and the uh, pressure from those corporations breathing down their neck that they're going to see them in, stuck in a tribunal for years to come. And of course, 
there's issues in relation to the pharmaceutical um, uh, drugs is incredibly important as well. And people don't know about that. And you talk to people on the street, they know all they really hear about the TPP is that um, it must be bad because even you know Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump don't support it. Well, um, it's time that our government uh, started being honest about the impact that this is going to have for communities here in Australia as well. And the idea that even cancer drugs will be more expensive to consumers and the government going for, forward because of their clauses in this deal. The fact that um, corporations can sue governments, and that doesn't just mean federal governments, of course, that's local government. If a local government wants to make a decision of their local community and a big company's not happy about it, they're going to come down on them like a ton of bricks. And this is why this is really important, is because this TPP is being used as the blueprint for trade deals uh, that is currently in negotiation across the rest of the world and the types of standards that countries like Australia will be seen that they're willing to accept. And we have to, we have to lift that standard up. We can't let it be regulated down to a point where there's really no, nothing that is being offered that is of benefit here in Australia. The irony, of course, with all of these issues, is people say, oh, well, you'd say that, Sarah, because you're the Greens, you don't, uh, you don't support free trade. Well, I, you know what, I'm actually all for free trade, um, but that is not what is on the table here. This is pages and pages, chapters and chapters of restricted trade that sets up a situation where Australia gets a worse deal, our regional communities get a worse deal, and the poorer countries in our region will get a bad deal as well. Uh, so it's not about being anti-free trade, this is actually about being honest and transparent about the agreements that are being signed in our name by our government. Now, this inquiry, I hate to tell you, will probably be a bit of a tick and flick process because it's uh, stacked by members of the coalition. And they're going to say, oh well, Malcolm Turnbull says it's alright, let's push it through. Our friends at the big pharmaceutical companies say it's alright, so let's tick it through. Those uh, big corporations who want the relaxation on uh, ability for consumers and individuals to rally against decisions made by corporations. Well, they're saying it's the right, so we'll tick it through. It's one of the reasons why we've fought hard to get a Senate inquiry up, which will start in the next few weeks, because we need to use that as an opportunity to ensure that we have a proper democratic voice represented in relation to this. And that is... Uh, that inquiry has been established with the Greens and the Labor Party and a number of the crossbenchers. There is strong suspicion amongst the Senate uh, in relation to the TPP. Our job now is to make sure those politicians don't just um, uh, allow that suspicion to be kind of overrun by uh, the pressure of the government. We need to make sure it means that they won't pass the enforcing legislation. We've got a number of weeks to do it. Uh, we need to up the pressure and being out here today is part of that. So thank you very much. There you go. That was uh, Carol... Oh, sorry. No, it was... Um, Sarah Hanson-Young talking about the TPP. That's exactly right. Uh, all these names, these double-barrel names. You're on 3CR Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Kim. I think I've been up too long. I'm flagging. <laughs> <laughs> You've been up all, up to your old tricks again yeah, all night. Right. You'll have to tell them what's the next piece then. 
Oh, we're going to be talking to Joe Toscano. No, not yet. We're going oh, to, I got excited. No, yeah, you got ex- overexcited. There's mm. the next bit, which is Carol Bat, and uh, she's from the CPSU. Oh, this bit's depressing. I don't want to talk about this one. <laughs> All right, okay. She was also at the TPP, but this is really scary. This is truly scary. Our final speaker today is Karen Bat from the mighty um, public sector union. Uh, she is going to talk to you about how this agreement is also a means of corporations getting more privatisation so they get hands on our stuff. Thank you, Karen. <laughs> Thanks, Sally. As our previous speakers have highlighted, the TPP contains many threats to Australian sovereignty and our right to determine the type of country we live in by undermining the powers of government to regulate the behaviours of multinational corporations. The TPP prioritises the rights of private companies over the workers and the communities they live in. It undermines democracy by curtailing the rights of democratically elected governments to regulate in the public interest by giving corporations the right to sue governments for legislation that impedes their profits. But there is another free trade agreement on the horizon. It is even bigger than the TPP and that's the Trade in Services Agreement, known as the TISA. Like the TPP, TISA has been negotiated in secret. If you want to know what TISA means in a few words, it's this. The total commodification and privatisation of all of Australia's public services. TISA will provide foreign service providers free access to domestic markets at no less favourable conditions than domestic suppliers and would restrict government's ability to regulate those services to be provided. Disputes regarding a government's attempts to regulate an industry or the provision of services in the public interest that may impact on foreign investors' activities or its profit margin could be subject to litigation under any of the other bilateral agreements that already exist, using the provisions that they have a legitimate expectation of fair and equitable treatment thereby raising concerns for any regulatory system a sovereign government may determine as necessary for the public good. That would include occupational health and safety laws, workers' compensation laws, environment protection laws, consumer protection laws and labour laws, to name just a few. Litigation under these agreements does not include an appeal mechanism due to the strong opposition of the United States government and the apathy of the Australian government who have not pushed for an appeal mechanism on any of these dispute areas, saying it is not necessary or practicable. Showing that the interests of multinational corporations are of more importance for the Australian government than the interests of the citizens it's supposed to serve. Sanctions against a country that loses such litigation can include compensation for the loss of projected income or the suspension of other rights they may have entered into into other such agreements under the World Trade Organization, such as agreements on intellectual property rights. An example, as Dave mentioned, is currently underway in Portugal, where the Mexican Transport Corporate, a company, is suing the Portuguese government for 45 million euros because the government decided against privatizing its transport network. TISA is bigger than the TPP. It involves 50 countries and accounts for 70% of the world's economy. The signatory companies will seek to impose the deal on the rest of the world via the World Trade Organization. TISA differs from the traditional trade deals as it is only about services, it is not about goods. It is not so much about trade, but allowing multinationals to provide services across sovereign borders. It treats services as marketable commodities 
and treat citizens as consumers. Like the TPP, TISA undermines democracy and is a threat to the ability of governments to regulate their services. It would open the door to greater casino capitalism as it would hinder the ability of governments in the future to regulate the financial sector and thereby exposing us to the potential of another global financial crisis. Uruguay and Paraguay have already left the negotiations, believing the deal would be too big a threat to their national sovereignty and an ability to regulate multinational corporations in the interest of their citizens. Some parts of TISA operate on a negative list, meaning that if a country does not explicitly list areas it wants excluded from the deal, they are assumed to be included. This means that if any new service or products are invented, they are automatically included in the TISA. TISA will lock in privatisation of public services, it will make it much harder to reverse privatisation and will allow greater market access for multinational companies. Signatories to the TISA will have to treat foreign multinationals with at least as much favour as local companies. Even if the local companies are much smaller, thereby giving large multinational companies a free kick in our economy and jeopardising the jobs of Australians working for smaller companies, for NGOs or for government agencies. We will see services change from serving the public interest to serving the profit interest of private corporations. Such an agreement would also undermine online privacy as personal data could be moved across borders to countries with lax data protection laws. TISA has two clauses which, when taken together, will make it harder for a future government to realise public services, sorry, to renationalise public services. The two clauses in the TISA, when read together, make it clear that an agreement provides for the privatisation of a government service, the ratchet clause would then apply, and that will ensure that once a foreign company is allowed to provide the service, it will become almost impossible to reverse that decision. And the standstill clause means that no new regulation or legislation can be passed that gives foreign companies worse treatment than at the time the teaser was implemented. Therefore, as an example, it would entrench the idea of technological neutrality on matters such as energy policy, which would stop countries or states, given Australia's current debate about renewables, favouring renewable energy over coal, oil or gas. As a result of the, TS, the TPP and the TESA, we believe they to be a, a deliberate push by politicians to give away control of our public services and to funnel wealth into private hands. These agreements turn public services into commodities to be run for the benefit of business rather than in the interest of our community. We know that Australians are overwhelmingly opposed to privatisation and yet politicians continue with their privatisation agenda, selling off assets, outsourcing public services and negotiating international free trades to lock us into a future of private profit. My union, the CPSU, believes that we should have a say over how our services are run and for what and for whose benefit. That's why we, along with other public sector unions affiliated to the Public Service International, have launched the People's Inquiry into Privatisation. The inquiry is coming to Melbourne on the Tuesday the 18th of October. I urge everyone here to come along and have your say about privatisation. We need to stand up and defend our public services. They are our services and should be run for the benefit of our community and not for private profit. Thank you all for coming out. Common Ground Festival is back this November, featuring Frank Yammer, Dallas Frasca, Emily Waramara, The Deans, plus loads more. 
Complementing the music makers on stage will be free workshops from the Group Work Institute, a social change unconference, mouth-watering food and nature in abundance. It's about working together to make the world a better place and having one heck of a good time along the way. So visit commongroundfestival.org.au for your tickets. A 3CR supporter. The mighty Frank Yammer. I'd go to the Common Ground Festival just to see Frank oh, Yammer. Oh, that's just, what an incredible voice. I love the cello as well, of course. Yeah, it's lovely, it's lovely. And on the line we've got uh, Joe Toscana. You're on 3CR with Annie and Kim, Solidarity Breakfast. Hey, G- Joe. G'day, Joe. Are you still there? Oh. Morning, good morning, good morning. Morning. <laughs> <laughs> Now, Joe, we've got you out of bed after a very long and hard week because that's exactly what you do, being a big-hearted and hard-working fellow. Uh, you, you've uh, got your uh, knickers in a knot uh, on, uh, in, in, for good reason. They're going to sell off public uh, housing. Well, I've never had my knickers in a knot, I can assure you of that. <laughs> very well, organised. Yes, but I am, but I don't, I don't iron my underpants. You can relax. <laughs> now, I am on a very serious thing. We are received some information that uh, cabinet, the Victorian State Cabinet, has endorsed a decision to privatise seventy percent of uh, Victoria's public housing stock. Now, this is not the normal type of privatisation where they sell it to a private corporation. But what's going to happen, and we saw this with the Aboriginal Housing co- co- uh, Cooperative a few weeks ago, is that the the management and ownership, the key word is ownership of uh, public housing, will be uh, passed on to uh, community, social and affordable housing groups. Some will be not-for-profit, others will be, not, uh, will be for profit, obviously. Uh, this is a huge shift in the mechanism by which the state provides affordable housing for those people who have the greatest difficulty uh, obtaining housing. It's a radical shift and it's something that you wouldn't expect because the dilemma is that when you pass over ownership, what it means is those associations can buy and sell on the private market. They can set rules about who goes into their property and who they ex- accept and who they don't accept. Uh, Currently, as far as public housing is concerned, there's only really an emergency list. Low income families don't get public housing, but if you're in an emergency situation, after a lot of struggles we've seen with the uh, uh, squatters in Bendigo Street, you may get some public housing. But what this means is the government has absolved itself of its responsibility. It's done a Pontius Pilate. It's washed its hands of its responsibility to provide affordable housing and, and you know, like Joe, it, it's such a, a trying thing. You know, we were talking about language before. They use these words, you know, like social housing and uh, affordable housing, and all this, all these nicey, nicey words to actually. Uh, but when it gets down to it, people who are actually in real need can't get a foot in. Exactly, because 
because obviously, obviously, if it's a privately owned, whether it's not for profit or not, privately owned housing, and they set the agenda on what the rent will be, uh, what uh, who goes in, uh, what type of people they accept, what type of people they don't accept. The thing with public housing is obviously there are many shortfalls in public housing. That, to a significant degree, is not the fault of the tenants. It's the fault of governments, both at the state and the federal level, who have refused to invest in public housing. At the end of World War II, because of a housing crisis, 300,000 houses were built by government in this country within a space of five years to provide much-needed public housing, not just to people in desperate situations, but uh, poor families and working families who couldn't put their foot in the door. Now, what people need to understand is, once you privatise public housing, you know, by using these fancy words, as you said, community affordable social housing, what that means is that there'll be a significant proportion of people who will never put their... will never actually have a roof over their heads. That's right. And if you've got a strong... If you've got a strong, vibrant public housing sector, it acts as competition to the private sector. What that means is that uh, rents would decrease for our cheaper homes because there wouldn't be a need for people to pay 50 to 50 to 60% of their income you know, for a one-bedroom hovel somewhere. And what it also means is, because investors will then desert that market, that uh, people who are trying to find a, a, a put in the door for a first home would have a better opportunity to actually secure a first home. So this is not just about people who can't afford housing or people on minimal incomes. This is something which will affect everybody. As well, there's been this real demonisation of public housing tenants. And in fact, public housing tenants pay rent. And most from I think most of Australian history, they've been poor working class people. But the other thing is that they actually pay it forward. I mean, these people never end up owning their own house or passing it on and in their families inheriting it. It goes back into the public purse and that's something they probably end up paying a lot more in some cases than people who uh, buy their own home. Well, you know, this demonisation of public housing tenants, the people not using the word public, mm. has been something that's been going on for the last 40 years. You'll notice in major, most of the major news, out, news outlets to actually be in public housing somehow to be in inferior housing, defective housing and for you to be inferior and defective because you haven't been able to put your foot in the private uh, market. This is this is this demonisation of public housing tenants is a specific political uh, uh, act uh, which is designed to promote privatisation. Now, what people need to remember is when the VET scheme was uh, um, privatised, shonks came in. That's right. Uh, anything that we've seen when 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 um, Electricity and gas was privatised. Prices went up, not down. When the banks, when the Commonwealth Bank was privatised, the break was taken off the uh, the other privately owned banks as far as competition is concerned. When you've got a mixed economy, which is a combination of publicly owned and privately owned, publicly owned assets act as a break on the ability of the privately owned uh, corporations to actually, you know, rip people off. Now, if we privatise public housing in this state, it's going to have massive ramifications and we will never see uh, this happen again, the fact that people will be able to be housed by the state. The state, if the state hasn't got... The state has a responsibility 
the state is not just there to maintain security for the ruling classes and those who own the means of production, distribution, exchange and communication. The whole history of the 19th and 20th century was a history of forcing the state to look after the more vulnerable members you know, of its community. And over the last uh, uh, 40 years, they've washed their hands of this responsibility. You know, I'll t- tell you just a little story on this business about not being able to get your money back and also uh, the class issue that's involved. Down in uh, Port, uh, in Albert Park, the school, local school down there wanted, has uh, used, part of the road has been allowed to use a road to extend their playground. They then had a vote to see if they could cement that and they wanted to extend it so that they could take over the entrances to two roads. There was a massive local uh, campaign against it. Now, you remember, Albert Park is a very well-heeled suburb. There was a massive campaign against being allowed to extend their amount of uh, road uh, space, public space, and making it part of the school's um, property. Now, as someone pointed out to me, the, the reason for why the locals would have done that is because, of course, whenever they privatise, like what if they decide they're going to sell off that school? Then all that land goes to a private operator and you never see it again. Now, the people in Albert Park are very canny financial operators. So do you think they would allow all this to happen if it was going to affect them? That's just a small parcel of public land. That's right. We don't, we don't look. People say, "What about private investors?" I don't care about private investors. No. I most private investors have a home already. Yeah. Okay? The state's responsibility is not to look after private investors. We have land tax in this in this state, and we have we have stamp duty, right? Now, if you set aside half of the land tax collected and twenty five percent of the stamp duty collected, you could have you could take everybody the forty thousand on the waiting list that are waiting for public housing. You could take everybody off the public housing list. It's very simple. These are about political priorities, and this is what this debate is about. What are the political priorities? And to get a state Labor government to go down this path is to allow them to go down this path will have major ramifications for all of us for decades. I think as well what really gets me is at the moment it has been in the mainstream media quite a lot about the increased rates of people sleeping rough in the CBD. And I think some of the explanations really haven't cut it. Like I think one of the reasons that they say that there are more people sleeping rough is that well, people don't feel safe in the suburbs. It's like, well, why now? That doesn't make any sense to me. That's rubbish. That's just part of the... The Sun-Herald, you know that something's happening because the Sun-Herald has started this campaign and some of the suburban newspapers have started a campaign to say how unsafe we are and we need 3,300 new cops, apparently. Could I get your opinion on that, Joe, and whether you think it has any relation to the public housing? What people... Look, I do believe there is increasing crime and increasing frustration because there is no social elevator anymore. There is a section of the population which has basically been shunted aside and has and has been treated as disposable, you know, as a disposable commodity, disposable garbage. There is a section of the population. This section of the population is the type of people that are flocking to one nation and other type of uh, groups that are around because nobody is actually listening to them. And I do believe there is increasing crime and there is increasing dislocation. But we are now reaping the benefits of 40 years of privatisation, corporatisation, globalisation and deregulation. Now, if you want to 
revert that, the first thing you need to do is to give people access to housing. You want to decrease crime, you want to decrease anxiety, anger, social dislocation, mental illness, domestic violence, you know. You want to decrease this, you know, um, you know, family violence, you want to decrease this, you need to go back to basics and provide people with the basics. You provide people with the basics, then you have a possibility of resolving problems. Because people talk about welfare. I never talk about welfare. I talk about what it was legislated for. It's a social security net. And a good social security net includes housing. And what it means is it provides security for everybody. People in the suburbs, you know, poor, rich alike. That's what a social security net is about. You create holes in that social security net, people fall through that, they do what they have to do to survive. You're on 3CR with Annie and Kim and we're talking to Joe Toscano about this outrageous assault on public assets, uh, public housing in Victoria. Um, just before we leave that particular issue, uh, I'm not sure that people necessarily understand that social housing isn't public housing. You have to have you have to have an income of twenty five thousand dollars a year to even be allowed to live in one of those places. Did you know that? That's right. Well, that's what I'm saying is these groups set their parameters for the type of people they want in their housing. Now. Previously, the government had some impact on these groups because it set the parameters for, you know, in which they work. If they give over the ownership of the public housing stock and the management of the public housing stock to these groups, these groups will do what, irrespective of how, what's the goodness in their hearts, they will do what's best for their association, their community group, whatever. That's what it's about. And, that's, and you're right. Some people, some groups set bars which are impossible for many people to jump. It's a little bit like the old days in the 19th century when it wasn't the social security net. You had the deserving poor and the undeserving poor. That's right. Yeah, the deserving poor, you know, did the right things, bended knee, doffed their caps, got what was necessary. The undeserving poor were basically shunted aside. And this will create that division among people. The thing about a state based and a state-owned and a state-managed enterprise is there are laws in place which prevent discrimination occurring and which mean that everybody theoretically has equal access to those resources. Yeah, it's so disrespectful, isn't it? You're starting a campaign around this, aren't you? Yes, a big campaign. Uh, we've, uh, we have bought the domain name Defend and Extend. It's not just about defending. It's about defending and extending public housing. We'll have a website up next week. More importantly, uh, we're calling for mass rallies outside State Parliament because they are making a decision before they announce the decision. This is a preemptive strike. And the first mass rally will be at 11.30am on Thursday, the 20th of October, on the steps of Parliament House. Now, I don't expect... Say that again. 11.30am, Thursday, the 20th of October on the steps of State Parliament House in Spring Street. It'll go for about an hour and a half. I don't expect this to be a huge rally, but the next rally will have more time to organise. That'll be on the 17th of November, which is again a Thursday at 11.30am, and we would like to see all the way from Spring Street down Burke Street to the Burke Street Mall 
council of people because this affects everybody. As I said before, they privatise public housing. It's going to be more difficult to get access to private rent at the lower end of the market. It's going to be even more difficult for people to enter the housing market and buy a house, young people. And uh, this affects everybody. So how can someone get involved if they're really fired up about this? Well, what I suggest they do is they uh, um, tell people about this rally. You don't have to join anything. You don't have to pay any money. Just tell people that this rally is happening. Use their Facebook pages. Use the, the net. Knock on the door of other people if, if they are in, in, in public housing. Um, uh, ring their local politicians, their state members. Say, is this true? Is this going to happen? Put pressure on them now before they make the announcement. Yeah, embarrass them. Now, on a, a, a different note, tomorrow, Sunday, you've got something terrific happening. Yes, we've had it for about four or five years now, the Peter Norman Day, uh, the 9th of October, which was the day Peter Norman, who was the, Olymp- he was the Olympic silver medalist in 1968, who wore the uh, I Support Human Rights, Universal Human Rights badge when Carlos Smith, Smith gave the Black Power salute on the dais. He was a Melbourne boy. He was born in Coburg. He paid a huge price uh, for his stand for uh, dignity and human rights. Uh, uh, in in the year 2000, when we had the Sydney Olympics, the uh, Sydney Olympic Federation still was punishing him, didn't invite him to the S- Sydney Olympics. And when the American Track and Field Association found he hadn't been invited, they invited him as their special guest to the Sydney Olympics when he died, uh, I think it was seven years ago. Carlos and Smith came to Melbourne and acted as pallbearers and the American Track and Field Association declared the 9th of October as a human rights day in the United States in the uh, in the track and field uh, uh, thing. So we, we are holding a uh, just a gathering at the city square at the corner of Collins and Swanson Street at midday sharp tomorrow. The special guest will be uh, Matt Norman, uh, Peter Norman's uh, nephew, who was the producer and director of the film Salute, which you can you know, see on the YouTube if you want to see what this is all about, uh, to pay our respects to Peter Norman and maybe to start a ca- and to start a campaign after our successful Tanaminoa Morbohina campaign to have a monument erected to Peter Norman in the Melbourne CBD. And you're also trying to get uh, one of the parks in Coburg named after him, right? Well, that's right. Well, again, we, we've got to wait for the council elections, which will be declared on the 22nd of October, and then we'll decide what our strategy will be, whether uh, we'll have to set up a committee and decide which direction to go. But uh, there is the the local campaign for the Moreland City Council, and there's also, a, I think, there's going to be a campaign for the Melbourne CBD through the Melbourne City Council. Did but you... again, this is a great Australian, a great Australian story, a story that should be celebrated, which is ignored. By Australians, ignored by the media. In the America, in the United States, the 9th of October, there'll be gatherings across the country, which are organised by the American Track and Field Event to uh, Association to highlight the role that they... the role of what can happen when black and white get together to overcome, you know, discrimination. Did uh, was was it you that uh, christened the uh, if I could use that term the uh, S- Sydney uh, the um, city square democracy square? No, no. We after the Occupy movement was forcefully evicted, we 
rechristened it. We had a little ceremony. We went down there and we rechristened it Human Rights Square. Melbourne Human, Human Rights, Rights Square. Square. Yeah, not democracy. <laughs> Human <laughs> Rights Square. Melbourne Human Rights Square. And we do advertise it as that because that is actually owned by the council, what's left of it. Federation Square, you'll love this. We had a big campaign of this over many years. Federation Square is owned by the state government and managed by a private corporation. Mm, of course it is. It is private property. You need permission. Just two weeks ago, the Wednesday Action Group were there at Southern Cross Station. You get 90, 70 centimetres of space. We had a big interaction with security and police. Southern Cross Station, owned by the state government, managed by a private corporation, private property. I think it's the same with QV, isn't it? Yep. That's right, QV, uh, uh, which was built with the blood, sweat and tears of the women of this this, uh, state at the at the turn, beginning of the 20th century, a penny, a shilling they donated to build it, private property, but there's a little bit, which is public property, and that's why the demonstrators won that. Yeah, that case, that was really significant. Thanks for getting up and having a yarn with us, uh, Joe. That was very important stuff. Well, there are two things. If they go to my Facebook page... uh, What, you've entered the electronic age, Joe? I've entered it a few months ago. Yeah, I know. I knew that. Hmm? I just thought that was pretty funny, since you used to carry on so much. Well, I do carry on, and I still think it's a waste of time, because a lot of people saying they're interested and they're going to come, but you never see them. So let's see people there on the the, uh, 20th of October, because this 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 has got the potential to be a very important campaign. There's a state election in two years' time. Uh, Unless the state government backtracks on what it's going to do, We'll be holding rallies till the next state election, and the, uh, the Labor government needs to understand that it's going to have electoral issues if it continues down this path. Okay, thanks, mate. Thanks. Thank you very much. All the best to all your listeners, and I'm amazed that people listen to you at this time of the morning. <laughs> <laughs> thanks for getting up. Uh, and you are you're on Solidarity Breakfast with Kim and Annie. Solidarity Breakfast is on 3CR, and if you're listening, of course you know that. But you can eight five five on your dial. Yeah, and uh, it's a podcast and uh, streaming and all the other things that uh, Joe used to... The interwebs. Yes, that's right. But uh, now we've got to go to This Is The Week That Was. A week solidarity, Bricky team listener, when spare a thought for the poor bank big supremos who had to face the probing depths of the ignorant politicians, many of whom have no idea how banks work, how banks have to make obscene profits in order to keep the economy flowing. As we quoted that big bank supremo last week, worse packs Brian hit them harcher. The banks are like the heart circulating the blood of capital around the body of the economy. Yet even before the cup of tea and biscuits annual three-hour invite got going, they announced they may, this is the government of course, introduce penalties for rate rigging. Surely they needed to wait and hear why the poor banks need to rig rates. Something to do with those essential obscene profits, we suspect. But if some poor bank striving to keep the heart of the economy working ends up before the courts, big, big if, but... I imagine if the bank is found guilty of some offence, the big supremo and the board of directors will be the ones carted off to the big house, we asked Brian. <laughs> he couldn't stop laughing. No idea why it must have been nerves at the prospect. 
Yet as the government got tough and puts big bank supremos through the ordeal of tea and biscuits for three hours a year, the Socialist Party continues its irrational argument that the three hours a year tea and biscuits is to avoid a real investigation, a Her Most Gracious Majesty's Royal Commission, which would also drag the victims of alleged, repeat, alleged bank rip-offs to tell their side of the story. What nonsense. Big Supremo Malcolm Tun of Bull himself assured us three hours a year will lead to massive cultural changes in the big banks. And this week, the banks have also pointed out this new proposed law about the effect of giant corporation competition, crushing competition, will in fact stifle competition in the banks because the banks will be afraid to innovate in case its effect is to crush the competition. So where does the competition come in now, Brian? Well, we compete, for instance, on seeing who can supply the lowest interest rates on what we pay customers and the highest interest rates on what we charge customers. We compete on fees to to see who can raise the biggest fees, who can come up with the most innovative fees, the most outlandish. You've, You've no idea how much fun, how many laughs we get out of this, like the walking in the door fee, standing at the ATM fee, and if the government agrees with us that like the witch bank that used to be our bank, whose privatisation has done so much for competition, for the efficiency of the private sector, if they agree to privatise the footpaths outside our properties, and don't forget, these are our properties, then we have this very clever plan to introduce a walking past the door fee. And, And you've no idea how much fun we have adding to the small print in our insurance products to ensure no one can fall through the cracks and get paid. The look on their faces when we tell the next of kin they should have read the small print, it's it's priceless. Well, not quite priceless. We do have to hit them with a making a false claim fee. So, as you can see, we compete in and who can create the most innovative means of ripping off, well, alleged ripping off, so an effects test would threaten, would stifle such innovation and competition, which is the very essence of market forces, of our critical role as the heart of the economy. Therefore, how impertinent of some politicians, presumably long-haired commie ones, to ask whether any heads had rolled over a few of the little innovative rip-offs, although thankfully they all expected if heads had rolled, they had rolled well down the line. No one suggested just maybe the head at the top of the pile might bear some responsibility, like giving the orders. Solved again, as we mentioned last week, by not-so-Wells Fargo in the U.S. of the U.N. of the U.S. of the world by sacking hundreds of 20-year-old $13-an-hour tellers who were clearly at fault. They must have known my orders were asking them to break the law. Big Supremo John Stump on customers exploded. They got what was coming to them. Oh, and ask why banks are much quicker at increasing interest rates when they go up and much slower at lowering them when they go down. Brian said there was no relationship between them. He really said that. No, I can't help either, listener, but that sure put them in their place. 
not getting what is not coming to them, customers of this acne skin cream in the US of. Remember when Martin Scrocelli last year brought a big pharma, as they say, pharmaceutical company, and immediately increased the price of an AIDS pill from $13.50 to about $900? Well, Novum Pharma has increased the price of a tube of acne cream from $240, not exactly a bargain basement price anyway, $240 to a mere $13,100, and the U.S., Food and Drug Administration rates it as possibly effective. <laughs> For 13 grand, you'd like to think your chances of it working are a bit stronger than possibly. But the bit I like that anyone who can explain this, please send your explanation to the week that was Care3CR. Novum said, we will invest revenues generated by the higher prices in schemes that ensure more patients can access the medicine. Just wish they'd give it a bit of an explanation. But must say on skincare, I'm tempted by the welter of ads which flood our tellies offering eternal youth or promising our skin will look like we've discovered eternal youth. Just apply or bathe in or whatever this product and we'll look years younger. And when I see them and look in the mirror, I, f I feel I need that. And each one contains a miracle ingredient the dear baby Jesus put on earth just to make us look younger. And there's so many, I've done a calculation, if we were to apply all of them before going to bed, I reckon we'd wake up back in the womb. Following that riveting debate in the US of, we got a simple explanation why Donald hasn't made public his tax returns. There's nothing to make public. He doesn't pay any. And these claims that Donald is misogynist, how could a misogynist own the Miss Universe quest? He must love women, using them in his quest for, and Miss Universe's sole ambition, world peace. Speaking of peace, the world mourned the death of Zion politician Shimon Peresh the Arabs, honoured for being the father of the Zion-trained killer nuclear program and the father of, father of and proud enthusiastic generator or progenerator, sorry, progenitor of its illegal settlements in the countries illegally occupied after bombing and slaughtering the occupied people, for which nuclear bombs and stealing land he won a Nobel Peace Prize. The grateful Palestinian people, or rather non-people, must be so thankful and wonder what life would be like if they didn't have peace. Thank you, Shimon, for giving us peace. Now all we need is a piece of land. With that attitude, they'll never win a Nobel Peace Prize. Wanting a country in what Shimon knew was greater Zion, given to Zion by Yahweh 3,000 years ago, a fate accompli the recalcitrant Arabs refused to accept. Uh, but you took our country only 69, well, almost 70 years ago. Exactly. After all this time, you must accept the fate accompli. Accept that, and accept that Shimon gave you peace. Uh, but we must have our country, our land. It's that attitude that prevents you accepting the peace that Shimon gave his life for. Have you no respect for a man of peace? Back in the US of, while smart Donald shows why the law says he has no responsibility to pay one cent of tax from his obscenely huge income, if his boasting is to be believed, the same law is about to put a hardened criminal on trial for ripping off the community big time.
a schoolboy charged with stealing a 65 cent carton of milk, which he was entitled to under a free lunch program, but forgot to pick it up and went back to get it. Then was accused of stealing it in the, sorry, the brilliant constabulary called. He may have been black, don't know, but probably not, because otherwise they would have just shot him. Summary execution, saving court and prison costs. After all, he may have pointed the carton of milk at them, and any self-respecting copper could easily mistake a carton of milk for a, a gun or some sort of lethal weapon. Knowing the innate fairness of the US of liberty, freedom and democracy legal system, he'll probably get away with a slap on the wrist to be back on the streets in as little as 30 years. On justice, I'm sure no one but the most cynical would suggest heavy behind-the-scenes manoeuvrings and deals with certain officials led to those nine products of the establishment, including a son of a senior diplomat and a member of caring business class party minister Christopher Payne and his team, walking free, penalty-free. After all, the minister for going overseas all the time and being a perfectly good little prefect, duly bash up the workers assured us she would not intervene with the Malaysian authorities. Bet that working-class drug mule facing the death penalty in Malaysia wished she'd been a product of the establishment. Finally, oh, and we did say months ago, watch this space on Attorney General George Brandy's brain and keep watching. Finally, on teleads we all love, one of those pushing these ubiquitous programs advising us on the best this and best that... We save you time by finding it for you. In this case, the best real estate agent for us. Two professions admired for their truth and integrity, advertising and real estate. But I thought, why do they ask redundant questions which answer themselves? Like this ad asked absolutely unnecessarily, how can you find an agent you can trust? When the answer is so obvious, so obvious I won't demean your intelligence listener by repeating it. Good morning. On Sunday, the 9th of October, 3CR opens its doors to the community and invites you to come in and celebrate 40 years of radical radio. There'll be an awesome afternoon tea, roving musicians, special on-air broadcasts and the opportunity to step into the studio and get behind the mic. There'll also be face painting for the kids, stalls, rolling station tours and the chance to purchase for the first time 3CR 40th birthday t-shirt. Come in and enjoy your community radio station. 3CR Open Day, 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy. Sunday the 9th of October, 12 to 4pm. See you all there. And you're back with Annie and Kim on Solidarity Breakfast, and we're joined by Dr. Noah Pasil. How are you, Noah? I'm very well, Annie. How are you? I'm good. Is it lovely weather up there? It's been sensational, actually. It's been an Indian summer uh, the last couple of days. High 20s, low 30s. Uh, oh, well, there you go. That's good. Uh, spring is over and summer has begun. <laughs> we, went, we went from a very short winter to uh, almost non-existent spring straight into summer. Oh, well, we've just uh, had uh, really amazing weather here. We've had uh, spitty cold rain followed by 26. Very strange. Yes, well, it is the future. (laughs) That's right. But we've got more important things to talk about than the weather. Well, I don't 
I don't know. Is there, is there anything more important than climate at the moment in the world? Maybe not. No, you're mm. right, Steve. Yeah. Mm. Um, these, these sort of extreme conditions, I think, are a sign that um, the planet is out of balance. And, you know, who knows? I was... I, I, this is a bit of a digression, but um, I was at a forum a week ago uh, in the afternoon and uh, most of the conversation was about the dangers of... Um, the dangers from climate change to the very tenuous balance of uh, um, in many Middle Eastern countries that you know water uh, desertification population growth uh, food scarcity these are possibly the most important questions in the whole range of countries across North Africa and the Middle East and in Bangladesh they already have climate refugees mm. well lots of places do I imagine they do yes indeed well Darfur is partly a conflict about um, dwindling land resources as a result of the spread of the Sahara. Oh, welcome and to a brave new world. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, you know, I think what we're experiencing is a milder form, well, milder to some extent, form of the extremes of weather that are, you know, really changing societies all around the world. Except South Australia, that's pretty crazy. It the rain. crazy, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Well, that's exactly, I guess... You know, if that was a poor, if South Australia was a poorer community, or if there was the sort of poverty um, and density of um, of, uh, of population of somewhere like Bangladesh, we might be talking about South Australia in exactly the same terms, or as Haiti, or somewhere else where we're talking about you know large numbers of loss of life. We talk about landslide, all those things that happen in countries where they don't have the resources or the capacity to protect the citizens against extreme weather, um, you know, it's really the... I mean, the extreme weather is one thing, but it's also the flip side of that is... Um, and this, is, this was my argument in Darfur, is that rather than focus on the uh, climate and the conflict over land, one should focus on the incapacity of the government or the state to actually intervene effectively in solving problems. And why does that happen? Well, there are a whole range of reasons, which I'm sure we'll get to... Well, they uh, are starting to, to intervene in, you know, South Australia, except they're saying yeah. that it's renewable energy. That's the problem. Well, you know, yeah. I, I, think, I think that uh, the, when they say renewable energy is a problem, is a classic example of uh, trying to agenda set using uh, mm. promotional tools that uh, reinforce the interests of big business. Oh, indeed. But, I mean, the, what I find quite fascinating is big business could make a lot of money out of renewable energy. But not the same big business people. I think that's the well, key. Well, I mean, some of the stuff I've read suggests that companies like BP and Shell have been sitting on the um, electric car technology for a number of years. Yeah, um, because they're trying to squeeze the, the lemon. Well, they're trying to squeeze the lemon, but, I mean, if they shifted and used those resources to... Um, uh, to, to diversify their their uh, business into a new area, they'd probably just be as profitable. I mean, the banks were all for the um, uh, for Rudd's um, uh, market on on um, emissions trading scheme. The emissions trading scheme. They thought there was a great opportunity for a, a, another way of making profit. But uh, that's mean, but that's the thing, you know. It, on if you look at it from a distance, you can see that that would be the case. But if you move in a bit closer, 
uh, my point about who are the actual capitalists who are benefiting uh, is probably more to the point. The people, oh, take, no, you know, take your point. Okay. Yeah. who's manipulating what? I take your point. I know we, the fossil fuel industry has been very resistant, but I think there's also, I think, you know, just putting it on interest is just a little bit too narrow for me because there are capitalists who could make a lot of money out of, um, you know, the, the changing... Um, the, the needs that are associated with changing to, to protect the planet. But they're resistant, I think, because they're ideologically um, blinkered and, and set in their conser- conservatism. But conservatism, I, I think one of the big problems that we've got over the last 30 or 40 years, along with, and it comes out of the, um, out of the neoliberal project and the Cold War, is this, um, this, this continuous... Um, demeaning of knowledge. Yeah. You know, the Republicans, the, the Conservatives in Australia have, you know, consistently said that science, science can't be trusted, that the people who work in the expertise of producing knowledge are somehow um, a, a part of the communist uh, conspiracy. You know, we hear this <laughs> all the time with climate change denialists where they say, you know, and, you know, I've, I've, I've had this said, I've heard this said in forums or in um, public spaces where people have said about uh, environmentalists or conservationists that, yes, you're green on the outside, but you're red on the inside. Oh. You know, that environmentalism is a form of communist takeover. And, you know, this is what's happening in the U.S. and on the conservative side. Um, They're equating climate change with a government conspiracy to... Um, to intervene in their lives more effectively. And that's come out because there's been a long um, project by corporate interests and by conservatives in the US to link any form of regulation to to communism, any form of government intervention to Mm -hmm. communism. And the reason for it is that companies in the US do not want the government interfering in anything, from labour right through to environmental protection. Yeah, it's been argued by uh, that um, uh, people, you know, the idea that uh, if you educate people, you know, if you educate people, if you give people information, they will be then able to make uh, reasoned and rational decisions. Uh, It's been argued that actually what's going on at the moment is that people are voting and making decisions based on the type of people that they are. You know, that the people themselves are products or that they're a niche market and they it's all too overwhelming and so they decide they're always going to vote Liberal or they're always going to vote this way, they're always going to vote that because of the type of people that they are. Do you have a view on that? Well, people are a product of their, of their experiences, their, their conditions. I mean, that's a, for me, that's one of the core um, axioms of Marxism, that you can't understand people if you don't understand the structures in which they're, they're, um, they're produced or in which they live. Yeah, that's exactly that, right. Yeah. It doesn't mean that that's the only way that we can understand that. You know, you can have two... You can have twins growing up in the same family who have very different political beliefs. Um, so there's more to it, of course, but there is an element that the conditions in which people... Uh, live uh, play a huge part in um, shaping their, their, you know, the way they understand the world and the way they behave and what they believe. 
Um, and, you know, in the U.S., I think, you know, to, to give, only because we're leading into the U.S. election, um, you know, there has certainly been a program, I think, of 30 or 40 years at least that goes right back, actually, into um, earlier U.S. history about it that, that's based on this individualism and this sense of the government being something that Americans must protect themselves from. Um, you know, Reagan famously said in... Uh, 1979, lead up to the election, um, government is not the answer, it's the problem. And there's that long history of that idea in the US that comes out of the revolt against the British against the British in 1776. Oh, uh, can I jump in here? Because I've got, I've got yes. a theory running along, uh, that's been running along for a while because of books I've been reading, that uh, actually it seems to me that the Americans have never got over the Civil War. That hasn't been resolved. Oh, look, I think in the South that's probably true. I think the, the victors always get over wars. They uh, move on very quickly because, you know, their their interests are, um, are uh, you know, sort of advantaged. Um, look, I, I think there is, there is a sense that the U.S.'s constitution is one that is, that is one that provides for a, a lot of, um, difference and diversity, and it's such a huge country. I mean, even in Australia, yeah, huge. I mean, you know, you know, we talk about Queensland, mm. you know, you know, sometimes pejoratively, and that's probably unfair. But there is certainly a different attitude in parts of Queensland, uh, political attitudes, uh, parts of Queensland from most other parts of the country. And the Hanson phenomena is really a Queensland phenomena. I know there are other pockets of Australia where she resonates, but really, Hanson's sort of. Um, um, you know, her, her strength, her, the strength of her beliefs uh, rooted in something in Queensland, out of its history, out of its economic situation, you know, sort of structure, something that we can, you know, that we, that we, we know is different from New South Wales, Victoria, South Australia, which have, you know, very different historical foundations and um, economic structures. Well, I think it might spread partly to do, I think, with the fact that there's always been a much larger sort of farming base in Queensland rather than Mm. organised industrial working class. Of course, there is that as well. But I think having a large number of what I suppose are basically small business people does kind of change the demographics a little bit. I, I agree with that, Kim. I think so. I think the economic structures. I think also... The Queensland, the Queensland Labor, um, as far back as the 1880s, 1890s, was very resistant to immigrant labour, especially Kanaka labour, because of the way that it, um, uh, brought, it, it sort of pressured, put pressure on wages. Um, you know, the, and um, I think that also played some part in the sort of anti-immigration rhetoric that's a bit stronger in Queensland than it might be in other parts of the country. But yeah, you're right. I mean, it's those things that. that we need to examine to understand why people uh, believe what they do, and and, um, and you know you can't you can't abstract a person's political beliefs out of their life experiences, the the way that they um, b- behave, and um, oh, sorry, the, the pressures they've faced, and the and the different economic constraints and opportunities that they've had. Um, and you know when we think about the rise of this sort of new racism in Australia and many other parts of the world, uh, you know, for someone like myself, you have to trace it out through the way that neoliberalism has created new uh, social, new relations 
um, between different groups and pressures on societies that didn't exist maybe 30 or 40 years ago, or if they did exist, they certainly weren't as emphatic and as powerful as they are today. Just to go back um, to what you were saying a bit earlier about America, do you think is, is it possible that neoliberalism found that in that kind of anti-British rhetoric that that was in some ways quite compatible with part of the neoliberal project? I think so. I think also in the South, um, it, it probably had a, in some ways had a stronger hold because of the um, the legacy of uh, the sort of contempt and antagonism towards government. I mean, neoliberalism has two elements to it. One is the so-called empowering of the person, the individual, um, and the second is the fear of the state. Um, and I think in the US, both of those have very strong foundations, both those um, ideas. I mean, neoliberalism really comes out ideologically as a philosophical, sorry, as a philosophical idea, comes out of um, the reaction to totalitarianism in Europe. It's not actually an American, in a way, it's not really an American philosophy. It comes out of the Eastern European and especially Jewish experience of, not that I, I don't want to make this an anti-Semitic in any ways, but, uh, and, and far from it, um, but, you know, there, there was this reaction to totalitarianism, a natural and, you know, I would say, um, um, obvious reaction to the totalitarian states, Nazi Germany, uh, Stalinism, um, you know, the, the Nazisms in Hungary and um, or, or the fascisms in Hungary and Spain and Italy uh, that produced a reaction where the state was a threat. And, you know, let's, let's be honest, in the 20th century, more people have died as a result of the 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 the, um, the violence from their own states than across borders. Yeah, you know, that's if right. You think, if you think about the hot... I mean, maybe excluding World War Two, but, I mean, you know, six million people died in Germany, um, or, or some millions are Jews, mainly Jews, but also dissidents and communists and others at the hands of the Nazis. Oh, and, and people have to remember yeah. that, actually, during that period, this was going on through the decade before the Second World War. That's right, absolutely. They used absolutely. it as I mean, a part of their penal code. I'm not sure everybody realises yeah. this. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, elsewhere, you know, people were being rounded up and killed by their own governments regularly. I mean, Stalin, um, um, you know, the, we can talk about Mao. This is not just an uh, attack on authoritarian right-wing governments, but authoritarian left-wing governments have also been hugely responsible for um, massacring their own people. So the state has, on one hand, the state's necessary to protect us, on the other hand, it's probably been the most um, um, violent um, actor in um, in history, and you know that that understanding that I think is important for understanding the philosophy of neoliberalism. I mean, there's an economic element to it as well. That economic empowerment um, through the market um, is is part of the sort of core. Um, a, a core aspect of human nature, which, of course, you know, most of us would would challenge. But the other element of it, the, the, the resistance or the reaction to the state, is something that I think, you know, many people on the left share as well, not in the same sort of way. But, you know, when we think about anarchism, um, communalism and a whole range of other movements, including what's happening in Rehova at the moment in northern Syria, where there's an attempt to 
make politics a grassroots, a, a project that comes um, bottom-up rather than top-down. Yeah, yeah. So what, um, what you're really saying is this time-honoured discussion between the actual power relations between the individual and the whole um, because, I mean, uh, it's always struck me as being a great describer that uh, uh, that humans are actually collective animals that uh, that dare to differen- differentiate. That's effectively mm. how it works. So yeah. th- there's a whole range of uh, issues at the moment where people are being incrementally impinged upon for no reason at all. The state has yeah. decided that it's going to impinge on people. Well, and, yeah. That. Marriage equality. I mean, there's, I mean, what? Yeah. Why, why should the state regulate who, who who lives with who and on what basis? I mean, that's a private matter. Let's, you know, really, marriage should be about the individuals who are involved, not the state regulating it one way or mm. another. I think we've, you know, we no longer live in a theocracy. And just to um, jump in there, there is a rally happening today. Um, one to three at the State Library Steps for Marriage Equality, just being very In topical. Victoria. In Victoria. Excellent. No, no, that's great. I mean, this is what we... we but, I mean, we need to... De- in a way, you know, the, there's been an um, inability to make... I think there's been an incapacity in the debate around marriage equality to, to move it away from a question of what the government should or shouldn't do to one about what are the rights of the individual um, or, or, the, or society and what... Should the state be legislating about and what it shouldn't be legislating about? I don't think it should be legislating about marriage. I don't either. There are, as- there are aspects of, of it that they should be legislating, you know, such as, you know, um, separation and, you know, property rights and all those things. I understand that. But about the, the actual rights of people to make decisions about um, their own lives in that sense. I mean, you know, this is... What I find most angering, what I'm, I, I think I found most confounding and also I'm angered about is that the same people who, who preach neoliberalism to us ad nauseum are the same people who are opposed to marriage equality. And that contradiction should be made to them every time they stand up. Well, we see this, how it hap- say, first happened, was with how it actually found that there was a loophole in the law that made the law somewhat fair, that technically an individual did have the right to marry anyone of any gender. Mm. And so he brought in something to make sure that that was certainly not the case. And again, someone who's a huge proponent of neoliberalism to make a right-wing, I suppose, what would you say, wedge politics. Well, it's ideological. It is. But the argument to those people should be, well, if the government shouldn't intervene in the marketplace... If the government shouldn't have the right to intervene in people's choices around uh, a whole range of other things, why should they have a right to to intervene in this area? Well, as someone pointed out to me, it's like saying we're going to legislate about being tall. Yes, yes, but that's what. So, so I think what we've seen in the last uh, number of decades is that as the government has retreated out of economic policy to make itself relevant and meaningful, they've started to regulate in other parts of our lives. I mean, why else... If the, the mantra that the government shouldn't intervene in, in the economy is one that we all accept, and many people in Australia do, uh, on both sides of politics. I mean, I, I think there are people in Labor um, and there are Greens who would argue that the market is the best provider and the most efficient way of distributing resources. 
as well as people on the right. I don't think that, you know, I think that ideology, ideology is well entrenched in our society um, on a whole range of levels. Um, if those, uh, you know, I think... Well, they're um, a product of their time. They are indeed. I mean, this has been the dominant or what some people would call the hegemonic idea for 30 or 40 years. And a lot of people believe it. Yeah, well, um, what they forget, of course, is that, hum- that you know what humans are really good at? They're really good at changing their mind. Sometimes. I mean, culture. So, culture sometimes. is supposed to be the thing that allows us to survive. Indeed. Sometimes we're good at changing our minds. Sometimes we don't change our minds for a very long time. <laughs> yeah, that's um, right, and a disaster uh, so, overtakes us. Yeah, yes. I mean, you know, I can't remember who said something. I was reading something about climate change not long ago, and the person was predicting that until um, that, that the US, US wouldn't actually actively do anything about climate change, like properly, until um, the, the southern um, sort of uh, arable land area, I can't remember what it was called, there's this big area of land that really feeds all of the, most of the US, becomes a dust bowl. Oh. But in that moment of crisis, that's when policymakers will do something because, you know, it is a crisis that takes action. But, uh, you know, I think, you know, to go back to what Kim was saying before about the US, I think the form of neoliberalism we have today is very much a product of US history and conditions. Um, and that's, I think, the point I was trying to make, that neoliberalism could have taken many forms after World War II. But it was sort of hijacked, really, by the Chicago School and the interests of um, and corporate interests that were aligned to it, and also um, the interests of the US in the Cold War. I mean, they, you know, pushed neoliberalism, not pushed, they imposed it, they enforced it through military and a whole range of other means on countries like uh, Chile, of course. Um, or Egypt. Uh, on Egypt, uh, on a, you know, on many, many places, through either through the World Bank and the IMF, or in the case of uh, Chile intervening and deposing a democratically elected leader and replacing him with a brutal dictator who would enforce these economic policies. And, and you know uh, the most extraordinary thing about this, it's all within only 100 years. Oh, less. Less. Much less. It's quite, I mean, 19, quite extraordinary. Before the 1973 recession, the oil crisis and the recession that followed, neoliberalism was a heterodox economic idea. People scoffed at it. And they were you know, right. They thought, they were right. They were right. Um, but by, the, by 1980, um, when Reagan and Thatcher were both elected on neoliberal platforms, it had become almost dominant in, um, in a whole range of economic and political circles. I think it's really important to point out what you did, the hypocrisy of the argument, because often it's more about ideology than it is about being consistent. What they actually have is a right-wing class warfare agenda and they'll use the ideology. You are absolutely right, Kim. I mean, look, you know, they talk about small government and we're pumping billions of dollars into um, keeping people locked up in concentration camps offshore. Yeah, that's right. We have to finish there. We have to finish there because we've only got three minutes to go. We could go on forever. For a great chat today. Really enjoyed it. Yes, thank you, Noah. Thank you, Noah. All right, see you. Bye. Oh, well, we always have to finish off before we really are ready to finish off. Uh, But anyway... Yes, but we often end up back in Australia at the end of it. Yeah, that's exactly right. And who did we have on today? We we went over the TPP. We had Dave Oliver and uh, Sarah Sarah Hanson-Young. 
and uh, also Carol Bat about uh, terrible things coming up uh, afoot, and uh, we followed that with Joe Toscano about the you know tragic decision by the uh, Labor government in Victoria to uh, proceed with the idea of selling off seventy percent of public housing, and we then went on to talk to uh, Noah about the state of affairs in the world. We're going out now, and uh, coming up next is Asia Pacific Currents. Every morning come down blues As wide the day is new Well I lay my head down once again When the and I has come out as again because of my You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.